Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath. In our third Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Vynamic's Jack Young and our new podcast member, Ollie May, who has taken over the reins from Oliver White to talk about what's trending now. Welcome, Ollie, to your new seat on the podcast. Thank you for that warm welcome, Mindy, and very happy to be here. There is certainly a lot going on in the healthcare industry. And I'm curious, Ollie, with all of the headlines that are going on, what have you been following lately? Really big news in the UK has been our biggest stock market launch in over 10 years has been Halion launching as a demerger from GSK. So the new company, Halion, is focusing 100% on consumer health, which is a very different business model to GSK, who are focusing on bringing molecules through clinical trials and delivering them to patients. So Halion are focusing on products such as Centodyne, Panadol, Advil. And this new business last year had 9.5 billion in sales. Now, this new business model for Halion has been in the works for a while through a series of progressive strategic moves to develop GSK's consumer healthcare business. The business has been transformed through a number of successful integrations, including Novartis's consumer healthcare portfolio in 2015 and the Pfizer portfolio in 2019. And before Halion's launch, GSK Consumer Healthcare was actually a joint venture between GSK and Pfizer. Now, GSK is retaining a 20% stake in Halion, which really is a show of trust and confidence that this new business is going to be successful and will deliver value for shareholders. Yeah, really exciting, uh, this development, Ollie. I've been following it quite closely, but from what I can see, it hasn't had the greatest of starts. From an investor perspective, when we think about the fact that GSK previously turned down a 50 billion offer from the business of Unilever, and looking at their market capitalization, it's around 25 billion. So that's around half the price of Unilever's bid. It's not great from that performance perspective. And and in further worrying news, Sanofi, GSK, and Halion have lost a combined 40 billion in market value just last week. A big concerns over litigation around a recalled heartburn drug called Zantac. And whilst Halion doesn't sell Zantac, it might have liabilities in relation to this litigation. So combining that news with both its poor start in terms of its debut on the stock market, I do have some concerns about how Halion might perform uh, over the coming months. But I do hope that its fortunes improve, as I think it really is an exciting development in becoming the world's newest and largest consumer health business. Ali, you noted that GSK is keeping some investment or stake in Halion, but part of the reason for their their divestiture was to really focus on their core business, which was researching and developing more clinical therapeutics. And of note, GSK has a vaccine that has been in development and we're waiting to see how it runs through trials, but they seem to be very focused right now on their their clinical side of the business and 
you know, focusing now on vaccines, which is a core area of their business. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, GSK and others are really forging the way still in terms of developing of vaccines. But it's actually been Moderna who in recent news have developed what's been called a next generation Omicron booster vaccine. And it's actually a world first for the UK. So really good news for the UK. You know, the UK is taking a hammering at the moment. We're in the midst of a cost of living crisis, huge inflationary pressures, as well as an impending drought. So I was really pleased and excited to see this story that had some great news for the UK. And when we think about the UK was the first country to approve the coronavirus vaccine way back in late 2020, and is now the first country again to receive this authorization for this next generation Omicron booster vaccine. I think it's really, really exciting. It was authorized by the MHRA just this week, as I said, manufactured by Moderna. It's called SpikeVax, which I think is a pretty cool name, and it combines the original form of the COVID vaccine with a tailored version for Omicron. It's got really good data in terms of its efficacy, and it's set to be available for an autumn vaccination campaign in the UK. And although COVID cases have been falling quite steadily, in mid-July, still around two and a half million people tested positive for coronavirus. And as we go into the winter months, and as we know, this, this virus mutates so regularly, I think it's really great that we've got another vaccine in our armory to help protect the UK public in the coming months. As you mentioned, this is not the first, but the second time the UK has been able to approve a vaccine as a world first. What are the factors that mean that the UK is repeatedly being the first one to approve these vaccines? I think there are a few reasons uh, for why the UK is kind of leading the way in this area. I think one of the reasons is Brexit. Prior to the withdrawal of the UK from the EU, only the European Medicines Authority could grant license for COVID vaccines. But actually, the UK modified the legislation to enable temporary UK-only authorization before EMA licensing. So I think that was a real key game changer in terms of when the first vaccine to get it through. I think being removed from the shackles of the European Union legislation really helped accelerate and get it through. And we've also learned the lessons from there. And I think it's been helped in terms of helping accelerate this new vaccine because the MHRA, which is the regulator for the UK, has done a lot of great work speeding up all the admin processes of approval. And these processes are now a whole lot more streamlined. They've also introduced new technology and they're speeding up the manufacturing process for vaccines. So the UK has always been a leader in terms of the healthcare science space. And it's really nice to see that we're leading the way in terms of getting these vaccines to patients. And undoubtedly, Jack, as you mentioned, this virus continues to mutate. So I'm sure that we will continue to hear and read about the next generation of vaccines coming to the market that will be able to contend with whatever the dominant variant is, hopefully globally. Ali, I'm curious, from your standpoint, are there other headlines that have been top of mind for you as you think about some of the activity in the healthcare industry? Alongside COVID, one of the other hot topics in the industry at the moment is sustainability and carbon emissions. So both the UK and the NHS have made big commitments to reducing their carbon emissions by depending on scope 2040, 2045 or 2050 to be net zero. And two really challenging areas for healthcare systems as a whole are anaesthetics and inhalers. So I'd like to focus on the second of those today, inhalers. And Kiasi has committed 350 million 
to develop the first carbon minimal pressurized metered dose inhaler to treat both asthma and COPD. And this replaces the current hydrofluorocarbon or HFCs propellant, which is in inhalers today. And HFCs have a huge impact on our atmosphere and our environment from a global warming perspective. Recent estimates suggest that at a macro level, the pharma industry emits 55% more pollutants than the automotive industry. This is a, a, huge, a huge topic, a huge challenge for the industry, and it really is driven by high energy consumption in production of treatments and medicines, diverse supply chains globally, and direct environmental pollution. Jack, obviously one method through which pharma companies are reducing their emissions are the development of new low-carbon treatment methods, such as this KAC inhaler. What other techniques are you seeing in the industry that are improving sustainability? It's such an important topic. I know it's one that's very close to your heart as well. And the good news is there are lots of steps that pharma companies can take to improve their sustainability practices and benefit the environment. These include improving their overall manufacturing and production processes and optimizing their overall supply chains, quick wins like transitioning to eco-friendly packaging, improving their waste management, reducing the overall toxicity that they have in their drugs, performing public education initiatives to help educate the public on how best to dispose of their medication. And I think the last one's the one that I like the most, which is they can ensure social sustainability by focusing on providing access to affordable medicines and treatments to countries that are most in need, that are poor and underfunded, to help improve patient outcomes for those that might not ordinarily get access to these innovative treatments. Linked to social sustainability is diversity, equity, inclusion. And I'm always looking for stories in this area because it's a, it's a topic that's very top of mind for our dynamic team and obviously the industry and the wider world at large. And Bayer has recently topped the pharma rankings for diversity and inclusion. And this was based on a survey done by a media specialist called Alva, which used a scale of minus 100 to 100 to rank all of the top 20 pharma companies in terms of their diversity, equity and inclusion efforts. Bayer were top. They were closely followed by Gilead and Sanofi, just a couple of points adrift. And the worst performers were unfortunately Astellas, Eli Lilly and Teva Pharma. So Oli, I know how passionate you are around DE&I and I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your perspectives in terms of some of the benefits of being DE&I focused for pharma companies today. Such an interesting list to see companies ranked on this and, and a comparison between pharma companies. So obviously at Dynamic, we really believe in the benefits of DNI and want to share these with our clients as well. And some of the benefits that we often see are benefits to talent, so both attraction and retention of talent, employee satisfaction in a, in a diverse environment, which is generally better, understanding of patient voice can drive creativity and innovation. And then finally, in rankings like this, which employers and supply chain and customers look at, your environmental, social and governance ranking, your performance in that space, and also your reputation in the market is going to improve. This is such an interesting headline. And I think the fact that we're reading more and more about DNI in the news and whether it's evaluating how companies are currently or what some of their strategies may be going forward to adopt 
more inclusivity into their organizations, I think is is heartening to see actually. So I'm glad that you you both chose this as a headline. And as we know, in the healthcare industry, there is no shortage of activity. And I look forward to seeing what we are talking about in the next episode of Trending News EU. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, subscribe to the Trending Health podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change, please visit trendinghealth.com.